And I am Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we have a studio filled with people today. Filled, filled, filled. And I have feedback, I guess, from my computer. I apologize for that. Generally, we love feedback, but not that kind. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work so well. So uh, our, our fish wrap today, which we will get to, I hope, later on in the show. But since we have so many people with us, I thought we'd start with, well, why we're so crowded. And the reason we are so crowded is because there is a youth performance festival that will be performed this weekend at 33 Holly Street at the Center for the Arts, Saturday at 7 o'clock, Sunday at 2 o'clock. Let's start with the two co-directors of the Youth Performance Festival, Sarah Marcus and Kelly Silliman, of course, who has been with us many times on the show. She is the program director of the Northampton Center for the Arts. There's performance. The Youth Performance Festival will be, again, at the Northampton Center for the Arts this Saturday at 7 o'clock, Sunday matinee at 2 o'clock. The Youth Performance Festival. Kelly, what is it? Thanks so much, Bill. Um, so the Youth Performance Festival started in 2020 um, as an opportunity for young artists ages 8 to 18 to create original works of performance art with the support and guidance of working mentor artists in various fields. So music, dance, theater, um, and animation, spoken word kind of anything you, that can be performed. And in 2019, um, my co-director, Sarah Marcus, approached me with this idea. And um, both of us had really different experiences as young artists ourselves. I had lots of opportunities to create original work um, and was immediately excited about this idea. So we worked very hard that whole year and produced an amazing festival in 2020. And then everything promptly shut down. Um, so we are back in person, um, fully in person for the first time. We've been running the festival every year, and I would love to let Sarah tell you about how we managed that in the pandemic. I would love to hear about how you've managed that in the pandemic. I'd also like to know how you came up with this amazing collection of young people. We have people in the studio. We have a seventh grader. I believe we have a fourth grader. We have a senior in high school. I, I don't mean to say that this is not totally logical. I'm sure there is a logic to it. But how did you come across this extraordinary range of artists, both in terms of where they come from across the valley and their ages and their background? So talk to us about that and then tell us how you put this together. <laughs> um, sure. This is Sarah talking. Um, from the beginning, we knew we wanted this to be an intergenerational opportunity. Um, I was inspired by an opportunity that I had um, when I was working in Brooklyn um, with a similar program that worked with artists of all ages in a building that was a professional arts building. Um, and I was struck by how powerful an opportunity it is to have artists of all ages, both youth artists and adult artists working together and, and learning from each other. So from the beginning, we opened this opportunity up to all ages. Um, we spread the word throughout the valley, throughout towns, north and south and east and west to a number of schools. Um, and it's a free program open to anyone. So we get a huge age range of kids. And this year we have the absolute full age range of kids who are you know, eight years old doing something for the very first time to kids who are older teenagers who've really been working for a while in their art. How do they find you and how do you find them and how do you decide who's going to be in the performance and is this competitive in some way? Talk to us more about that. Um, it's not competitive in any way. We really seek to be um, a welcoming creative space um, that gives kids the opportunity to 
center their art and really see themselves as creative artists and get inspired by each other. The program is totally open. We haven't yet had to turn anyone away. Um, we are able to accept all the kids that are interested in making that commitment to coming for six weekends, um, Saturdays throughout January and February that culminates in this weekend. And they find us a number of ways. We did a radio interview with Monty that helped get the word out. In December, as, we sa as I said before, we talked to a number of schools um, and arts programs to get the word out to kids who might be interested. Sarah Marcus, co-director of the Youth Performance Festival. Would you like to introduce the people who we have, the young people who we have in the studio? Sure. They are yours, so <laughs> better you introduce them than I. Um, I'm happy to. We have a great range of youth artists today, um, both artists that are new this year um, and artists that have been here for all four years of the program since it began. Um, so we have Max Schneider. Max is a fourth grader at Lander Grinspoon Academy, and this is Max's second year participating in YPF. Um, you want to share what you're what you're making this year? Um, I'm making a piece where I made a song on guitar, um, and I'm and I'm gonna dance, and I'm gonna, I recorded the song, and my mom here um, helped me. Um, um, recorded and edited, so we both sang in it. Now it seems like there's like 100 voices singing, all nice and put together. And um, then there's the guitar that um, is, is also in it, and um, I, I'm going to dance to the thing in the real recording. You dance, you yeah. sing, yeah. you play the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, feeling how... And he, and he composes. <laughs> you compose. Yeah. I'm feeling a little less than accomplished. How about you, Buzz? I'm getting smaller by the minute. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll meet you down there underneath the table. So let me ask you this. Uh, Max, you're in the fourth grade. How long have you been singing and dancing and composing and playing the guitar? Playing the, 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 playing the guitar, I started at seven. Um, and seven so years I, old. Yeah, I've danced my whole life. And I started singing as soon as I could talk. <laughs> <laughs> and and do you have a teacher? Uh, yeah. Who's your teacher? Um, Maura Laurie. And how did you? And do you want to tell us how long you've been working with Laura? Laura, is it? Uh, your music. Oh, um, um, Josh Gordon. I'm sorry. So you have a number of teachers. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Okay. We got, we got mom there doing a little a little coaching. So. Uh, are you looking forward to this performance this weekend? Um, yeah. Well, I'm really performing. So I just want to get this straight. You wrote the lyrics and the music. Your mom and you sing it, and then you're going to dance to a recording of what you composed? Yeah. Bill, I'm getting smaller still. But it's underneath the table here where we are. There's barely enough. I can't even move down here. <laughs> yeah, really. I, that's quite astounding. Okay, let's go back, if we could, to... Uh, uh, Sarah Marcus, who is the co-director of the Youth Performance Festival, and ask us, who else do we have with us in the studio? Hey, Max, great job on the radio. Congratulations. Thanks. Okay, let's go back to Sarah Marcus. Um, so next to Max, we have uh, mentor artist Rachel F. Hirsch, who has been with the festival from the very first year and is also the um, co-founder, along with me, of Play Incubation Collective, which is also helping to produce this event. So Rachel has the unique perspective of being a mentor artist and also of watching um, a kid go through this process. 
So, Rachel, tell us what a mentor artist is. Tell us what you do. And uh, tell us a bit more about the incubation project. Sure. Well, it's easiest to start off by saying what we don't do, which is we don't make these projects, we don't direct, and we don't tell the kids what to do. We're just simply there as a sounding board to give feedback, answer questions. If they get stuck, kind of give some guidance on how to move forward. Um, And then we just kind of get to stand back in awe of what these youth artists are making. Okay, we have a youth artist here who is in the fourth grade who's been playing guitar and composing and singing and dancing uh, his whole life. And uh, by the way, seems to be enormously accomplished. (laughs) So this young person or others like this person show up at the youth performance festival at the program and says what does what? I mean, how does it how does it come together? Yeah, it's very different um, for each youth artist, but we usually start off with some exercises just to kind of get the creative juices flowing. Um, You know, for most, for a lot of the youth artists coming in, they've never done anything like this before. We're so used to being told, this is how you do this, this is what you're going to make. And so we just say, okay, let's throw some ideas at the wall, get up moving, get your body moving. Thank you very much for saying ideas. I really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) So... They don't come in with an idea of what they want to do, but they come in with a skill set or some uh, some interests in in their art or their performing arts. Yes. Yeah. Um, some kids come in without really any clue. They just know they want to try out this opportunity to make something, and then they get to kind of look around the room and see what other people are doing, and I think are often inspired by that. And others come in with a really clear sense of, I love to write music, so I'm going to write something new, or I love to dance, and I want to make I want to make a dance. Wow. And how did you become involved? Um, well, Sarah and I have been collaborators for a long time, and she had been telling me about this project in its infancy and sort of the when it was a kernel of an idea, and I was just super excited about it. Um, we collaborate on creating new work, and we're all about process-oriented processes. <laughs> um, and so this was super appealing to me. Um, and when Sarah came to me to ask if I wanted to be involved, I said, absolutely. And this all happens at the Center for the Arts? Yes. At 33 Holly Street here in Northampton. Yep. And again, we should note that the Youth Performance Festival, the performance will be Saturday at 7 o'clock, Sunday at 2 o'clock. And tickets, of course, are available at noholearts.org or at the Center for the Arts website. Okay, let's go back to Sarah Marcus, co-director of the Youth Performance Festival. Who else do we have in the studio? It's not that crowded. I know it sounds crowded, but this is not the 1950s experiment of how many people can we fit in a phone booth because there are no phone booths anymore. Sarah Marcus, who else is with us? All right, we have Simon Dostal, who is new to YPF this year Mm -hmm. um, and is a senior at Northampton High School um, and is sharing a new song. And you want to share a little bit about your process of... Um, of working on this song. All right. So um, about six months ago, I spent the night at my best friend's house um, and watched the two of them uh, making a great song in front of me. And I was inspired to go home the next day. I walked home with a skip in my step and I was hearing a song I'd never heard before. Um, I guess no one ever heard it before either. So I started, migrated towards the piano and started writing. Um, and I was fresh out of a pretty messy breakup, so that helped out. Um, it's nothing, called nothing like heartbreak. Nothing like heartbreak. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, it's heartbreak with a skip in his step. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, it's called "Lovely the Day," and this is my the first song I've written. So, I'm pretty new to this, um, and I'm getting to know the piano and the guitar right now. Hey, so. have you been playing the piano and guitar for a while? Mm-mm. Really? First, this is my first year doing you anything. You just started. So, yeah. Amazing. And vocals, so I 
joined um, the school play, uh, which is Rock of Ages this year, and I uh, got into Northamptons at um, uh, NHS. So I just started doing music all of a sudden because I got pretty bored. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and there was the breakup. Okay. So and, <laughs> and the breakup. So can you share a little of the song? Okay. Let me grab, let me grab some lyrics out. Okay. Sure. Kelly. Um, I do want to add that Simon grew up in a very musical family and um, is the younger sibling of one of our original YPF kids, Lucia Dostel, who was in the very first year of YPF. So it's really exciting to have Simon joining us this year. Right. And I would point out that one is not accepted into the Northamptons unless you exhibit some enormous abilities. <laughs> the really skillful acapella group Thanks. from Northampton High School. So I'm going to give you a little bit. Talk right, to ready? us. Talk to us or sing acapella, to us. Acapella. I wake up every morning. She's got a different game to play. The sky was gray and boring. But we were dancing in the rain. You and I, the skies aligned. It never mattered the time of day. But who was I by the lies? Electric love stuck on the brain. Okay, Buzzy, it's really, really crowded underneath here where we, where we retreated to. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> Very. So let me go back. We have one more performing artist with us in the studio. Sarah Marcus, the honor of the introduction is yours. Sure. We have Jess Atkins Barber. Jess is a seventh grader at um, East Hampton Middle School and has been here from the very first year of YPF. So we've gotten to watch Jess really progress as... Um, They've gained amazing skills in the in the world of electronic music in particular. So share a little bit about your piece this year. Um, so this year I'm creating an electronic music piece using a DAW, which stands for Digital Audio Workstation. Um, and this is the third year I've done this at YPF. Um, the first year I did something different. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for this year. And how long have you been working... You okay? Let's go back. An electronic <laughs> performing workstation. What is that exactly? Um, essentially, and, and and take pity on me. I just yeah. just remember, really old guy doesn't know anything <laughs> about this. Help me out. Um. So, a digital audio workstation. Essentially, it's a software that has instruments in it. Um, and you can. Like you can use a piano and plug it into your um com in plug it into a computer, and you can record yourself playing. You can add all these drums, sound effects, um, audio effects. And do you play instruments, or or you, this is an electronic exercise in electronics? Well, kind of both. Um, I mean, you don't need um to know how to play the piano to do it, I guess, but it does help. So. I have, so I know a bit of piano, but I also play the trombone. You play the trombone. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd like to talk to you about that. I tried to play the trombone when I was in, uh, I don't know, fourth grade, I think. And um, my sister, who I made uh, empty the spit valve, will never let me forget <laughs> it. <laughs> I, I guess that's, that's really my question for, for one of the adults here, or maybe it's for one of the kids here, which is, 
Uh, I know from playing sports, we're always told that there are skills that we learn, discipline, working with other people, all of that sort of stuff. But for those who are young artists, youth artists, who don't go on to become performing artists as adults, what do they benefit? What are some of the benefits of participating in this? I don't know which of you want to take that question. Uh, I would say just exploring your own. I would point out that the kids are going to answer the question. The adults have all passed. I think it's really important to explore your own creative freedom, especially when you're younger. I didn't do it enough when I was younger, and now I'm 17, and I'm finally breaking out of my shell. So I'm glad that you're hosting this program for kids to get a feel for that early on because it's really, really important. Wow. Wisdom at 17. <laughs> so can we go back to the digital, what is it? Um, digital audio workstation. Digital audio workstation. Tell us a bit more, if you would, please, about the piece that you'll be performing at the Youth Performance Festival, again, at the Center for the Arts at 33 Holly Street, Saturday at 7 o'clock, a Sunday matinee at 2 o'clock. Tell us a bit more about the piece you'll be um, performing. Well, the piece that I will be sharing, um, how I came up with it was I don't have, like, a specific inspiration, but when it was brainstorming ideas, I wanted to make something that was more upbeat and had, like, a happy mood to it. So that's kind of what I was going for for the feel of the song. Um, this is Kelly again. Something that I want to share about Jess's work is that um, they are showing it as a video and what they've chosen to do this year which is new and I think is really cool is to show the file the audio file this um digital audio what is it again digital audio work <laughs> I feel so much better <laughs> I'm very analog myself um but the the video that goes along with the with the song is going to actually show the all of the tracks that Jess worked with so that people really get a sense for the complexity of the piece that was made well, it sounds like an amazing performance. Want to tell us one more time, please, where to get tickets and how? Um, sure, yes. You can get tickets by going to Northampton Center for the Arts website, nohoarts.org, or you can just stop by 33 Holly Street um, and, and get tickets in person at the show, 7 p.m. on Saturday, 2 p.m. on Sunday. I also want to give a call out to, to Jess's mentor, um, Mike Hansen, who's been with the festival for many years um, and really helped... Um, I think, develop and grow Jess's interest in electronic music and bring in Mike's whole skill set about electronic music, which is a skill set that many people, not just you, Bill, many of us don't have. Um, and is what's so beautiful about these mentor artists working as coaches is they're bringing with them all of their background to help um, guide the youth artists through creating their vision. We have been speaking with... Kelly Silliman, who is the program director at the Northampton Center for the Arts, and Sarah Marcus. They are the co-directors of the Youth Performance Festival. Jess Atkins-Barber, who is a seventh grader at Mountain View Middle School. That's in East Hampton. Simon Dostal, a senior at Northampton High School, who will be performing his songs at the Youth Performance Festival this weekend. Rachel F. Hirsch, mentor, artist, and Max Schneider, fourth grader at the Lander Grinspoon Academy. Thank you all so much. Break a leg. It sounds like a fantastic performance. Can't wait to see it and hear it. See you at 33 Holly Street Center for the Arts this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to be a gallery, put you all inside my show. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Sundays at Gateway City Arts. Bazaar, brunch, and programming. Something wonderful every weekend on the Canal in Holyoke. Shop for collectibles, vintage and used clothing, vinyl records, and much more at the Ray Street Bazaar and brunch from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., followed by poetry, music, or programs for children. On February 12th, Gateway welcomes world-renowned arch guitarist and composer Peter Blanchett for a free concert starting at 2 p.m. Check out the upcoming schedule at gatewaycityarts.com and plan your Sundays at GCA. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. So, front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. I was fascinated by this story, which I thought was an old story, but seems to be a new story, which seems to have a new wrinkle in it, which raises a lot of questions. I don't have a lot of answers, but I do have a lot of questions. The headline, Trading Arrests for Accountability, Five Police Departments, DA's Office Using Restorative Justice to Repair Harm Caused by Criminal Behavior, Buzz, you have a chance to take a look at this one? I did. I took a look at it, and it, it it's uh, heartwarming to read, continue to read about restorative justice as um, uh, as a real objective in policing locally. I, I love that. Well, what, this, what the story says is that there are five police departments that offer a program where instead of arresting people or summonsing an alleged offender to court— there is a restorative justice program. The departments are East Hampton, Hadley, North Hampton, South, and South Hadley, and Amherst. And the police departments have discretion, according to the story. Each partnering police department has the ability to set its own referral criteria, and they refer individuals who they think do not, in the police department's judgment, do not need to or should not be part of the involved in the criminal justice system. And then there's this alternative kind of circle of care or circle of restorative justice where the uh, person who allegedly committed an offense and the person who was uh, harmed by the behavior get together and then work, work it out and share. And there's a, our professionals involved. Got it. But I really wonder, I have a lot of questions. I can't wait to get the district attorney on the show to ask him about this. Um, should really the police department be the determining 
uh, organization as to whether it's or not really this good, happens? Actually, I just happened to, by, uh, by the fact that my partner, Diane Esser, and then-judge Tom Merrigan, were assigned by the Supreme Judicial Court to look into their laboratory, they called it, of restorative justice. And I can tell you, back then, it was the district attorney had to make a charging decision, and if he decided, uh, he or she, decided that it was not an appropriate, it was an appropriate case to put into the circle, as they call it, then um, it, probation was involved in, okay, how do we do this? There's basically three principles. One, you need an acknowledgement of wrongdoing from the alleged offender. Two, you need to identify the harm that was done and the importance of it being accountable for your actions. And then three, you have to determine restitution, which involves bringing in the victim. So the fact that it went from just a laboratory to the district attorney's office to the probation department, and now actual, we actually have police departments making the judgment, I'm not going to be so quick to judge the, whether the police are the right people to be making the determination. As long as the victim and offender are involved in the process, I think that makes sense. Well, I think that theoretically it makes sense. I'm really worried about the practicalities of it. The police department saying, well, I want to arrest you. I've decided I have probable cause to arrest you. I could arrest you. I could charge you. But if you tell me that you did it, then you can have a break. I see and, the problem and, and as a defense I, attorney. Yeah, sure. I find, I find that uh, problematic. I'd like to know how this program has solved that issue of not being coercive to presumably a young person who has run allegedly afoul of the law. And I'm concerned about, and can't wait to hear the district attorney's and law enforcement's explanation, but how a person is not kind of coerced into this. It's a great point. Uh, Incentivizing a confession, that's not a new thing. That's why we invented due process of law, so that we don't incentivize a confession from sometimes people who didn't do it. But I I think that the trying to avoid... You know, criminal records for people, particularly for the, it's sort of the old style. We used to have an old police chief, Walter Zelensky, the late Walter Zelensky. You called Walter and you said, somebody stole my kid's bicycle. And he would basically do restorative justice. He'd find out which kid stole it and he'd bring the two parents together and have the kid in the room. And instead of bringing charges in juvenile court, what he would do is try to work it out. It's It's not a new idea, but it's a new model. And uh, it's not going to be perfect, and I agree with you. Let's get David Sullivan um, talking about what, how he perceives this. It's really interesting. The article in today's front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, the organization known as C4RJ, Restorative Justice, took its first case in 2000 and has since worked with more than 1,500 people who were impacted by a crime, according to the executive director, uh, Aaron Freeborn. This process does work, Freeborn says. And the process, as described by Amherst Police Detective Marcus Humber, said you're getting the person that was impacted face-to-face with the person that imposed the harm. Um, I I think that sounds like a really interesting and potentially important model. Two aspects of it I really want to find out. One is how do we we make sure that the person never goes to court because getting rid of that arrest record, just having that arrest record on which theoretically could be uh, sealed, uh, is problematic. You end up in court at all, and that's a problem. So avoiding court altogether, I really like that idea. But the idea that the person goes to court and then has this arrest on their record that will be findable by employers or schools or whatever, uh, I find that troubling. So I think that keeping them 
person out of the criminal justice system altogether is a really good idea. I'd like to know more about how it really functions in practice with these five police departments, and I'd like to know whether or not there are any plans to involve other police departments uh, in Western Massachusetts. Right, and one of the keys to this, by the way, is the, the, perhaps some, I, I agree with everything you said and every concern that you have, but what's really true? Do we have that on tape there, Dan? Uh, well, I, I agree is, with yes, that part. That part. Okay, absolutely. Recorded. Just write down the date and the time, <laughs> and remind <laughs> me one day. No, but in all seriousness, a big problem with restorative justice model is sometimes getting the victim, the alleged victim, to buy into because often victims feel that revenge is what they want. They want to just hurt the person that took something away from them or damaged something of theirs. Instead, a restorative justice model says restitution. How do we best make the victim whole and make the victim part of determining how the offender should acknowledge and, uh, and be accountable for his or her behavior? The, the program is called Communities for Restorative Justice, uh, often referred to as C4RJ. And this final note from the story in today's Gazette, moving forward, Northwestern District Attorney David Sullivan said he'd like to see more police departments partner with C4RJ, citing the positive impact that the program has had in Middlesex and Suffolk counties. So we promise we're going to get the district attorney in. We want to talk more about this. We'll take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will have the reverend and the rabbi, certainly the rabbi. We will be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts State Police are investigating after human remains were recovered in Westfield. Officials say partial remains were found inside Stanley Park in a heavily wooded area. A hunter reportedly found the remains Saturday around 5 p.m. The remains were determined to be of 57-year-old Timothy Colendo of Westfield, who was reported missing in December 2019. State police say there is no evidence to suggest Colendo's death is suspicious. As state lawmakers mull another run at ambitious plans to make child care affordable, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren rolled out a plan Wednesday to do the same nationwide. Under a federal proposal that is backed by Governor Maura Healey, a family in Massachusetts with two children making over $130,000 per year would pay no more than $10 per day or $200 per month down from the current average cost of $3,128 per month. The bill would also ensure higher-income families pay no more than 7% of their income, and lower-income families making less than 75% of their state's median income would be fully subsidized. According to data from Child Care Aware of America, Massachusetts is the most expensive state in the country when it comes to full-time child care costs, averaging just under $17,000 a year. The owners of the Falltown Grill in Bernardston, previously the Four Leaf, have made the decision to not reopen the restaurant. In June of last year, the restaurant suffered a devastating fire just three weeks after opening. Mostly cloudy today, scattered rain and snow showers, middle of the day transitioning to all rain showers for the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Rain will continue this evening, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix and mild on Friday, a high of 50 to 54. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente Joe Biden dijo el lunes que las relaciones entre Washington y Beijing no se debilitaron por el derribo por parte de Estados Unidos de un presunto globo espía chino durante el fin de semana. Hablando con los periodistas fuera de la Casa Blanca, Biden dijo que siempre tuvo la opinión de que el globo debía ser derribado tan pronto como fuera apropiado. Cuando se le preguntó si el incidente del globo debilita las relaciones entre Estados Unidos y China, Biden dijo, no, le dejamos claro a China lo que vamos a hacer. Ellos entienden nuestra posición, no vamos a retroceder. Por su parte, el Pentágono dijo durante el fin de semana que globos espías chinos habían volado brevemente sobre Estados Unidos al menos tres veces durante la administración del presidente Donald Trump y una anteriormente bajo la del presidente Joe Biden. Mientras tanto, la Guardia Costera de Estados Unidos dijo el lunes que estaba imponiendo una zona de seguridad temporal en las aguas de Surfside Beach, Carolina del Sur, en el área donde fue derribado el globo. Altos funcionarios estadounidenses se han ofrecido a informar a personas de la administración anterior sobre los detalles de sobrevuelos de globos anteriores cuando Trump era presidente. En otras informaciones, el presidente republicano de la Cámara de Representantes de Estados Unidos, Kevin McCarthy, pidió al presidente demócrata Joe Biden que acepte compromisos y recortes de gastos, ya que los dos siguen estancados sobre el aumento del límite de deuda de la nación de 31.4 billones de dólares. McCarthy habló el lunes antes de que Biden pronuncie el discurso anual sobre el Estado de la Unión en una sesión conjunta del Congreso este martes, con el objetivo de adelantarse al presidente y reforzar su papel como el principal negociador del Congreso. A pesar a pesar de lo que parece ser un enfrentamiento, McCarthy salió de una reunión con Biden la semana pasada diciendo que creía que los dos podrían encontrar puntos en común. Un día después, McCarthy dijo a los periodistas que el presidente había acordado reunirse nuevamente. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we will change the intro for the Reverend and the Rabbi to say, in fact, it is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. But, hey, listen, for old times' sake, we play, old times sake, we play the Reverend and the Rabbi intro today. We have re- ra- with us Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, who is the Rabbi at Beta Hava here in Florence. Uh, rabbi, thank you so much for being with us. It's actually a difficult time, I think, a particularly difficult time to talk about God and justice and, mm. well, because so much is going on in the world. But, um, uh, but, but in particular, I'd like to have your thoughts with regard to the earthquake that has mm. devastated such a large swath of the earth and the people living on it. So let's start there today. Your thoughts, please, Rabbi. Yeah, well, first of all, good morning to both of you. Um, I, it's so it's so wonderful that you have this space on for community radio for for us to talk about this. The earthquake is just so it's unfathomable. I keep uh, just trying to understand what the numbers and what the level of devastation means, and just the individual the, the few individual stories that we get on the news. And um, you know, my I mean, I, I my thoughts are probably with everyone, but it's just such an enormous catastrophe and devastation and so much loss of life and brings up so many questions about, um, you know, just how do we handle these? Who are the people in the world that are affected by these events? What are all the geopolitics involved? How do we create aid? How do we keep our hearts open? open? Where do we, pour, you know, is pouring out some money enough? Like what do we as 
Westerners right here in this little beautiful place of New England? Like, how do we connect and and help uh, in this just unimaginable level of uh, just destruction and death and torment that these people are going through? Well, with regard to the earthquake in Turkey mm-hmm. and Syria and the incompetent response that the world community has made to the devastation. I'd like you to reflect with us on this problem that I have. And it's that, well, there are two, really. One is, I find it unfathomable. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think Mm. about the people who are Mm. dying under the rubble I don't want to think about the kids whose lives are cut short. I don't want to think about the parents who have lost children and the children who have lost parents. I just don't want to think about it. And I think that Mm. the way that I deal with it improperly and incompetently is to really put it out of my mind for Mm. a lot of the time. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you think uh, I'm not looking for confirmation I'm a bad person, but I am looking for your, your, your sense of... How do we deal with this? How do we make, how do we come to some kind of realization, acceptance of what has happened so that we can actually deal with it and act affirmatively to try to relieve the suffering? Help me out here, Mm -hmm. Rabbi. Yeah, I mean, okay, you're not a bad person, obviously. Um, I don't, you know, there's different responses. I find myself obsessed with the news when things like this happen, so I can't stop reading the same stories over and over, particularly the stories of children uh, there was a baby that was found attached to her mother through the umbilical cord. Like the mother had gave birth after the earthquake had collapsed on their home. And it's a miracle that this child was found. And for me, that is like a connecting story that just awakens me. Like I can't look, turn away once I've connected and, uh, and read that story and, and thought about it and seen the pictures. So some, you know, sometimes sometimes media can be helpful helpful in, in awakening us to connect with these things, but I, I don't think we have to comprehend it or even analyze it necessarily in the first hours. Like I think, um, as humans, we just need to connect to one thing and do something. Like it's not necessarily a time immediately to. Um, well, I mean, it's always a time to analyze, but and to be political, but. Uh, you know, immediately find some place to give some money to. Like, there's something, like, I guess in the Jewish tradition, there's always this question of if you have $100, do you give the $100 once a year or do you give a dollar every single day? Because uh, that sort of puts you in the habit of caring. And the tradition, in you know, that as far as I understand it, is it's actually better to, you know, unless there's an, a dire emergency right in front of you, is to... Uh, give a dollar every day because it just it keeps you in the habit of staying connected because we all know it's very it's very easy to get disconnected when these just horribly atrocious atrocious things happen in the world. Well, I don't know if that was the right answer. I, I'm going to ask Buzz for his his thoughts in just a moment, but I would like to stay on this topic of a dollar a day because it raises this question for me: mm-hmm. What can we? As individuals, what difference can we make? We're talking about something that is massive in scale. The amount of Mm -hmm. money that is necessary in order to try to rebuild these lives and try to save these lives in order to to, uh, immediately have food and medical care delivered to uh, Turkey and Syria, not easy places to deliver uh, 
necessary food and medicine too. What difference can my dollar, your dollar, our hundred dollars, what difference can it make? And I think that in some ways uh, almost freezes us and, and, and turns us to mm-hmm. inaction, which of course is all the wrong response. But your thoughts about that, Rabbi? Um, oh, I thought you were going to go to Buzz for this one. Well, I. I mean, oh, it's a difficult one. We can go to Buzz. We can go to Buzz. We can go to Buzz. I do think it's important for all of us to just. I mean, I think giving money when you can is important. You know, I come from a family where my great grandparents were ve- and grandparents were very poor. But the stories in my family was no matter how poor they were, they always gave to someone who had less than they did. So that's just sort of the tradition that I come from. Um, and, you know, having some go-tos that you are familiar with, and if not, you can look on the Internet if you're connected with a church or synagogue or mosque or faith group. You know, they tend to post things or share, here's a place that will be doing some direct uh, aid or emergency intervention intervention in the moment. But And I do think those dollars do help. But this this problem is bigger. Like, this is not going to go away. For these for these for this country, for these countries, for these people, like this, this will now be a lifelong issue. Um, there's, you know, there's natural disasters and then there's climate change disasters and they're all interrelated. And the people who are the, the poorest in the world are affected the most by these things and have the least resources. So how, how is this going to create uh, an even greater refugee crisis? What will our um, national response be to that? How will we treat these people um, I mean, those are, I think, the bigger issues that we need to figure out. Well, let me, let me interrupt you there. And since we have Buzz Eisenberg with us, who is pretty good at solving huge problems, Buzz, help us out here. Oh, the pressure. No, seriously. I, I think that part of it is what you were saying, Rabbi, which is we have to make our wishes known to the people who control the purse strings in government that uh, we might not be able, our dollar a day might not be able to the enormity of this is, is too great for us to be able to make that big a dent, but we have governmental resources and and international resources that um, can really help, and we have to make our desire known. I just want to read, I've had a longtime friend and colleague um, from that part of the world, and uh, also David Hoos, our local attorney, and I co-counseled a case with Ramsey, and wrote to Ramsey this morning, and Ramsey wrote back, my mom and my sister were awakened by the quake in Beirut. Pictures were falling off their walls, light fixtures fell, building was shaking. Mm. Um, in Tripoli and Damascus, it was worse, and my relatives ran from buildings to gather in squares and plazas outdoor. Aleppo was the very worst, and we had relatives there. They were closer to the epicenter near uh, Gazantip in Turkey. But thankfully, all of my relatives there uh, are accounted for, and their homes weren't damaged too badly. But nevertheless, once we know about that and the aftershocks, it's still so heartbreaking for me to see the images and hear the stories that other people are sharing with my relatives. That's what my relatives wanted to talk about, is the amount of suffering of people around them. Mm. I was so moved by that email, it, because mm. even when, you know, once you know that your family is okay, your family is really concerned about the level of devastation that Bill was alluding to earlier. We are speaking with Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, who is the rabbi at Beit HaVa in Florence. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we'll continue this conversation right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP. 
You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, who is the rabbi at Beta Hava in Florence. Rabbi, we have been talking about the tragedy of the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Uh, there is as well, well, there are as well other tragedies that are occurring. And there is an event here this weekend with regard to uh, Haitian refugees. And I'm wondering if I know that you are involved with that, and I'm wondering if you could share that information with our listeners, please. Yes, absolutely. So one, I would say that um, uh, HIAS, uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, that's one of the organizations that sponsors uh, refugees and asylum seekers coming to this country, has declared a refugee Shabbat, so a Sabbath 
for refugees, and it's, we've, we're now in the fifth year of this National Refugee Shabbat experience event. So, so in the Jewish community, we've been planning a number of events this month, um, specifically focusing on refugees. So this Sunday uh, is one of the main events, and it's co-sponsored by pretty much all of the Upper Valley synagogues, Congregation B'nai Israel, Beit Hava, Jewish Community of Amherst, and Temple Israel of Greenfield. And it's organized through Jewish activists for Immigration Justice, also known as JAGE, which is a wonderful organization here. Um, and the, the program is this Sunday at 4 o'clock, and it's uh, focusing on Haitian migrants. And the title of the, of the event online is going to be a number of amazing uh, speakers. Uh, it's called The Plight of Haitian Migrants, How Racism Works to Undermine an Immigration System Already in Crisis. And um, one of the ways that my community got, or we got involved is that uh, uh, around the time of Rosh Hashanah, the, the Jewish New Year, we held an event and we had a, a, a speaker um, from Jewish Family uh, Services speak, and she herself had once been a Haitian uh, asylum seeker. Now she works on behalf of um, Haitians coming to this country in Springfield. And we learned that there were um, a number of uh, families who were sort of in limbo. They're not considered asylum seekers. They are refugees, but they're not considered refugees, and they were in between being able to get services, so they were being housed at hotels in Springfield. So we had mobilized to uh, basically do a basic drive for diapers and winter clothing and uh, things that they needed that were, because they were in this uh, just terrible status, and no one really knew about them. Um, so this event is really um, more of a chance to learn in-depth about this situation and learn about all the nuances and what we can do. Um, it's 4 o'clock on Zoom. Uh, the easiest way to register is kind of a long link, but I'll send it to you. But the easiest way is to go to my to our website is baitahava.org slash RSVP, and then it has the link right there. That's a little easier to remember. Right. Just um, go to baitahava, go to the website, and you will be able to access. Yeah, there's an events button. Yeah, there's an events RSVP button at baitahava.org uh, slash backslash RSVP, and uh, I'll make sure it's at the top there in a couple minutes, um, but it's on that page. And um, for, so for this event, um, uh, there are going to be speakers, including Haitian migrants to Western Mass. Uh, there's going to be one person who's working as a case manager with recent Haitian uh, arrive, uh, arrivals. Um, we're going to have a Haitian political and economic policy specialist uh, who works at the Mexican consulate in Haiti who's going to be telling us what's happening on the ground. Um, I also found out that um, uh, Guerlain Yosef of Haitian Bridge Alliance who's the best known of the speakers, is going to be speaking about anti-black racism in the U.S. immigration and asylum systems and a case that they brought against the U.S. government, I believe, to the U.N. Committee to End Racial Discrimination. Um, and, of course, we'll tie it in perhaps to some Jewish teachings uh, about welcoming the stranger and welcoming refugees. But with what's going on with the earthquake in Syria, in Turkey, you know, I, I think... Uh, these are all these issues are all related, even even if they seem different. So I think it's a really important way you were asking earlier, how can we get involved? How can we sensitize? How can we learn how we can involve on multiple levels for these catastrophes and to help people in an ongoing way? And I think this is a great event to, to speak to that. With regard to the event itself on Sunday, I take it that anyone can sign up? Anyone can come. It's a virtual event it's at 4 o'clock on Sunday. It'll probably last about an hour, um, and the link is betahava.org backslash RSVP. Um, 
And I think it's going to be a really, really meaningful event. And I, I wanted to also just, you know, how do we move ourselves? I, I'm a rabbi, so I think spiritually often is the way to, to connect or to open our hearts. And I just wanted to read this one phrase from a poem that we read at a service last week. It was very meaningful. It's called Home. And it's excerpted from uh, a poem by Warson Shire, who's a British Somali poet. And the phrase was, um, uh, this is the phrase, it says, You have to understand, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Hmm. Who would, yeah, I just love that. And the second part is, who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck unless the miles traveled meant something more than journey? So... Um, you know, I think we have to remember what these people are going through. Uh, and remember that there are brothers and sisters. That it's one world we live in, and uh, they might be remote to where we live, but there are brothers and sisters. And we are, going to, we are going to leave it there. This has been Talk the Talk, and this has been the Reverend the Rabbi. On this segment, we have been speaking with Rabbi, with Rabbi Ricky Kozowski from Beta Hava in Florence, we thank you so much for your time, insights, and, and dedication and devotion, Rabbi. We are all in your debt. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Pazin Bell. What you gonna do with the knock from God? What you gonna do with the knock from God? Joseph said, my wife's in labor. Can't you see to do what's favorite? Let them save her rocks and ask the midwives. Slam the door and Mary started. Joseph, don't you be faint hearted. We had friends. Emotions and experiences play an important role in our financial decision making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Francis Rayum, Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5, 1400, and 1240, WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. The scale of loss grows exponentially after Monday's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. The death toll now tops 19,000, and rescuers say voices in the rubble are growing silent. Robert Holden with the World Health Organization. We've got a lot of people who have survived now out in the open and in worsening and horrific conditions. We've got major disruption to fuel and electricity supplies, communication supplies, the basics of life. We are in real danger of seeing a secondary disaster which may cause harm to more people than the initial disaster. Many of the volunteers, locals who've lost their homes. CBS News has learned more than 220 political prisoners in Nicaragua are on their way to Dulles Airport right now. The Biden administration says some have spent years in prison for speaking out against President Daniel Ortega. They'll be given legal status in the U.S. and paroled for humanitarian reasons. The Biden administration says the U.S. wasn't the only one. China used a fleet of spy balloons that have flown over more than 40 countries. 
Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin tells CBS News. All of our strategic assets, we were made sure that were buttoned down and movement was uh, limited so that we didn't expose uh, any capability unnecessarily. Officials say most of the debris from the balloon shot down off South Carolina has been recovered. A massive military parade in North Korea shows off the regime's newest nuclear hardware. CBS's Elizabeth Palmer's in Seoul. Kim Jong-un, dictator and family man, brought his daughter and wife to the military parade, which featured more intercontinental ballistic missiles than ever before, designed to reach U.S. targets. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman's in the hospital. Reporter Tim Jimenez with our affiliate KYW. Fetterman's office says he started to feel lightheaded at the tail end of a Democratic retreat, so staffers drove him to George Washington University hospital in D.C. His office says he was in good spirits and communicating with family and staffers. Now, this health scare is happening about nine months after Fetterman suffered a stroke right before the primaries. Reps say testing shows no signs of a second stroke. Ten retired NFL players are suing the league over disability claims. Okay, he gets a handoff. Right side. Shed the tackle and walks in for a touchdown. Willis McGahee among the group that says the NFL has aggressively fought to deny claims, seizing on technicalities and ignoring medical evidence. The suit seeks unspecified financial damages and removal of the board's six voting members. The Dow is up 210 points in early trading. This is CBS News. Do you know what people see when they Google you? Search engines don't always get it right. And when they're wrong, it's your reputation on the line. So what do you do when you don't agree with your search results? Call Reputation Defender at 800-401-6681. Reputation Defender by Norton is one of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. We have over a decade of experience in fixing people's search results, and we can help you too. Using cutting-edge approaches, Reputation Defender pushes unflattering information down to lower pages of your search results, where few people ever look. We also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, letting you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. You owe it to yourself to take control with Reputation Defender. Visit www.reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 for free advice on your situation. 800-401-6681. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts State Police are investigating after human remains were recovered in Westfield. Officials say the partial remains were found inside Stanley Park in a heavily wooded area adjacent to the park. A hunter reportedly found the remains on Saturday around 5 p.m. The remains were determined to be of 57-year-old Timothy Colendo of Westfield, who was reported missing over three years ago in December 2019. State police say there is no evidence to suggest Colendo's death is suspicious. The East Hampton Planning Board heard criticism at their meeting Tuesday night over a report saying that a large-scale residential and commercial center at the former Tasty Top site would have minimal impact to traffic flow on Route 10. The hearing lasted more than two hours and ultimately led to a unanimous approval to seek out another expert to review the developer's traffic study. Plans for the site include a Roots Learning Center, Roots Gymnastics Center, 10 three-story apartment buildings with 180 units, two sit-down restaurants, three mixed-use retail office buildings with apartments above, and two mixed-use warehouse buildings. Construction for a new Starbucks is also currently underway next door. 
A recent investigation found that most civilian complaints filed against the Holyoke Police Department had been dismissed without investigations. Reporter Dusty Christensen spent more than a year gathering public records from the department to find that police officers accused of violence and criminal activity on the squad rarely faced discipline. No one from the police department agreed to comment on the story. Mostly cloudy today, scattered rain and snow showers, middle of the day, all rain showers for the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Rain will continue this evening, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix on Friday, a high of 50 to 54. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I am Bill Newman. Yes, and this is Thursday, and it's uh, for me, it's always an expectation to, uh, that I enjoy to uh, wait for Brian Adams to come and talk about something important to all of us, about science and about sustainability. And Brian, what do we have today? Uh, first, a quick shout-out to the UMass women's basketball. It's nothing to do with science. Nothing to do with sustainability, but my goodness, are they good this year. I went to the game last night down by one point with 11 seconds left, and they score, and they win 80 to 79. So, If his they, smile was any broader, there wouldn't oh be room goodness. for me in the studio. No, I know we're not here to talk about basketball, but boy, are they good. 21 and 4. I know. They are, I think, number two in the Atlantic 10. And um, Last really, week we had a uh, longtime coach... Uh, Sherry Webb on talking about why is it that women are so good at UMass and yeah. that people still focus on the men's I, game. That and it not drives as much. me insane. It's yeah. sexism. It's just, just, just sexism. That's yeah. what it is. But that has nothing to do with the topic today. No. Um, today we are welcoming all the way from England. So we will be blessed with a British accent on this show. So um, for some of us, that's a real thrill. Um, Denise Baden. Denise is a professor of sustainable business within the Southampton Business School at the University of Southampton in England. Uh, Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very pleased to be here. So Denise is a professor of sustainable business, but we're going to begin with books. Um, you are a sustainable business professor, but you're also a writer, an editor, and a book publisher. And your whole thing is trying to incorporate climate change and sustainable solutions into fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, because I, I do a lot about sustainability and you get to a point where you think, gosh, this is so important, but you know, how many people are actually reading an academic paper in an academic journal? And it's always the people who already care. So I thought we need to move beyond preaching to the converted. And it would be nice, you know, if we could make it entertaining too. <laughs> so you're not just sort of, you know, reaching those who, who care about climate, but, you know, presenting really, really good stories, but maybe smuggling climate solutions, sometimes quite subtly, sometimes more obviously. So that, that's been what I've been at. And I, I set up the Green Stories Project back in 2018 because Pretty well everything that was out there set in the future or about the climate was just so depressing and dystopian and it's like the hope is that if you say oh terrible things will happen in this dystopian future that we might all scare ourselves smart and, and take some action <laughs> but 
I did some research and, and that's often not how it works. We, you know, scare ourselves into denial or guilt, or we might just turn full on prepper and buy up all the toilet rolls and in the US guns. So it's not always what you think. So I, I wanted to maybe showcase some positive visions of what a sustainable future might look like if we did it well to try and inspire and encourage people, you know, in, in that area. So is one of your goals to, um, to not to preach to the converted, but get people out there who are just looking for an escape in literature, to have fun reading, um, to get them inspired and actually motivated to do something about climate change? Oh, yes. So um, my, my first book, uh, Habitat Man, was a, a rom-com, actually. So about a guy who gives up his job to help make people's gardens wildlife friendly. And, you know, he falls in love and he digs up a body and there's a mystery. So there's plenty to sort of keep people engaged in the story. But at the same time, I can sprinkle a little bit about wildlife gardening and habitats. And, you know, um, if you're going to have a body, let's have a natural burial. We don't have to bury a ton of really good wood in the ground. <laughs> so it's a nice opportunity to entertain, but sort of smuggle in some green solutions there, too. Um, dysfunction dystopia the apocalypse that's that sells right i mean that's what people like to uh, to to read that's what people like to look at in terms of movies um but you're suggesting that that can be paralyzing that that can be unmotivating and that a positive rom-com romantic comedy uh, might even work better is 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 that is that right well, I guess there's two points. One is, yes, some people like dystopian stuff, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people hate it. So they're, they're not being reached by that. And another factor is that these just raise awareness of the problem, not necessarily the solution. And I don't think awareness raising is an issue so much as it used to be. I think if people aren't aware of the climate crisis, they're probably choosing not to be aware. And, you know, you can blame them it's quite frightening so i i think um yeah not everyone does like them and I, I did a little bit of research on how people respond to green themes in short stories and i had two short stories with a catastrophic focus and two with a more positive solution focus and i found out that um the more catastrophic ones did inspire some people but it was with a kind of much more passive thing like something should be done. Um, but also just as many people switched off completely and weren't interested. Um, whereas the ones which were solution focused, the, it inspired most people and um, with a much more active, oh, they, this person did this, so actually I can do similar. So it's much more active, um, changes and and no one was put off apart from one person who thought it was fluffy um so and there's not much in that field so like you say there are plenty of dystopian movies and books there's not much i think that shows us a positive vision of the future so there's a real gap there and that was the gap i was trying to fill um you've just published a book called no more fairy tales stories to save our our planet which is a uh, newly published anthology of short stories based on climate solutions, which is really very exciting. One of those stories is called The Assassin and is yes. written by you. 
Uh, can you tell us about that? And you have plans to turn that into a play, is that correct? Yeah, that's my new project. Um, I'm really excited about that. So quite a lot of the, the stories in the anthology took, you know, about technical approaches, refreeze, you know, glaciers, um, carbon drawdown projects. But among them, you have to ask yourself, if it's so difficult and costly to pull carbon out the atmosphere, you know, why are we still consuming and producing as much as fast as we can? <laughs> so you have to think perhaps we need more systemic uh, solutions. And um, the assassin explores those. And it explores the kind of solutions that perhaps politicians might find it hard to talk about. They can't be captured in a soundbite and people aren't so familiar with them so um, in a sort of adversarial media climate, which is typical of most liberal democracies, it can be quite risky to start talking about things as a politician. So what I like about fiction, it's a safe space to start looking at more radical policies. So it's set in a citizen's jury. It's kind of like where you randomly pick a diverse group of people and you give them a topic to debate and then formed by experts not by you know algorithms on social media uh, and conspiracy theories, informed by experts. And, um, and again, they aren't privileged people who've been paid for by corporations. They are your everyday people. And evidence shows that they make really good decisions and decisions that are more focused on the long term. And again, one of the troubles with our current democratic system is it's very much geared to the short term. We try and think, well, let's just be better than we are, rather than thinking, what does a sustainable society actually need and work back? So one of the key climate solutions there is the a participative democratic system of citizens' juries. So I think that will enable the kind of climate-friendly um, policies to go through better than our current system. So there's that, and it also explores things like the sharing economy, um, you know, and that's already taking off. I mean, with all the media about fast fashion, a lot of people are looking at fashion swap ads and pre-loved and secondhand. It looks at things like, should we go from a GDP, you know, gross domestic product as our measure of success, which basically reflects production and consumption, um, to a well-being index, which is a more planet-friendly <laughs> measure of success. Um, which would change the conversation from what's good to the economy to what's good for us. And obviously there is a lot of overlap, but they are not the same thing. Uh, it looks at things like personal carbon allowances, which was an idea floated back in England, uh, uh, Britain about 15 years ago, where perhaps we all have our own allowance of carbon. And if you want to go over, you pay more. If you go under, you can sell it. So it's an equitable way to make ourselves accountable for high carbon consumption. Uh, but at the time, we weren't scared enough, I think, for such a radical policy, and we didn't have the carbon footprinting abilities that we do now. But now we're very familiar with carbon offsetting. It's maybe not something we're ready to do now, but it's certainly something we should be start raising awareness of so we can address over, you know, high carbon consumption in an equitable manner. So well, Professor the assassin... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Professor Denise Batten, I, I wanted to ask you because you last year the UK went through what three prime ministers in in a oh, relatively yeah. short minutes, I think. Right, oh, yeah. <laughs> every fifteen minutes you had a new prime minister, and right now Prime Minister Rishi 
uh, Sunak, uh, there's a lot of what I've read here in the States. Um, people are not really clear on where he stands with respect to climate and uh, mm-hmm. remedial efforts of the type that you're discussing. Um, where does he stand and how does that interface with your fiction? That is, if you had a very supportive yeah. government, would your fiction read differently than it does if you have a very uh, well. climate denying government? So, um, sure. Um, so I'll, I'll just finish the, the, the first one. So in, in this sort of citizens assembly, they're discussing climate solutions and there's a murder. And that threatens to shut down citizen juries who are given power. So it's a sort of who done it, who, who's going to get murdered, who was the murderer. And we're going to change it to a play. And um, at the moment, as you say, with, with Rishi Sunak, all I can say is in the middle of COP26, when we were holding forth about how Britain's leading the way in climate policies, he lowered the tax on domestic flights. Um, so right in the middle of all that rhetoric, and, and he saw no contradiction there. Now, I think that tells its own tale. He thinks addressing the climate crisis is about a bit of recycling, uh, which he isn't very good at, but his kids are apparently, <laughs> and planting a few trees. I don't feel our future is safe in the hands of someone who thinks addressing the climate crisis is about doing a bit of recycling. So it's not difficult to make the case at the moment that our current democratic system needs updating because in the last century, we didn't have the information technology that enabled it, made it so easy to interfere with the information people were given um, (laughs) to promote ridiculous conspiracy theories that people believe. we're in a very different place now. We didn't have the climate crisis looming. So the idea of the assassin is to engage the audience. So you put on the play, there's the murder. In the interval, they can debate the climate solutions. And then at the end, the Crown prosecutor has to decide whether to prosecute the murderer. If he does, this was the first citizen's jury to be given legal power. It will then be shut down. So his crisis of conscience is, do I let one murderer go free? And this is the end of citizens' juries as a new form of democracy. And by inference, the end of our opportunity to make climate-friendly decisions for the long term, or do I let this one go? And he engages the audience in this decision because it's too much for one man. So that's happening at the moment. We've got our first reading on Monday. And um, there's quite a few organizations who are campaigning. They think, why do we still have a House of Lords? I mean, how out of date is that? Wouldn't this be a great opportunity to switch to a House of Citizens and supplement our representative democracy with a participative democracy? So we're kind of tying into that using sort of the old theater as education tradition. It really, it really sounds like you're you're right at the intersection of fiction and nonfiction, and making it enjoyable yeah. with fiction. <laughs> the assassin is one of the stories in the book "No More Fairy mm-hmm. Tales: Stories to Save Our Planet," which is available. I know at Broadside here in Northampton, and uh, of course uh, Amazon. But rather, you be shopping at a local bookstore. We're talking with Denise Baden. Uh, Denise is professor of sustainable business at the University of Southampton in England also a writer, an editor, and a book publisher. When we come back, we'll talk about more about sustainable business and some of your work uh, regarding that. So stay with us through these messages. Near the water children see the fish all dead upon the shore. 
Don't go near the water Water isn't water I took my boy fishing to my old... You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. How do I love thee? Let Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley count the ways with the perfect Valentine's gifts for the ones you love. Step in from the cold to browse our lush tropical greenhouse of foliage and flowering plants, succulents and cacti. We stock tiny terrarium plants, up to large floor plants, as well as pet friendly and low light plants to suit every space. Winesick Nursery's new gift shop offers many unique decor and gift items with a botanical flair. Find the perfect gift for your Valentine or yourself. From birdhouses, bird feeders, and garden tools to eco-friendly home goods, locally crafted ceramics, scented candles, greeting cards, garden decor, and more, you'll be impressed with our new offerings. Gift cards are available in-store and online at winesicknursery.com. Winesick Nursery, Route 9 Hadley. We are the growers. Come to the source. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome back. We're talking with Denise Baden. She is a professor of sustainable business at the University of Southampton in England. We've been talking about books. Um, Denise is a writer, editor, and book publisher trying to incorporate climate change solutions into fiction. But you teach sustainable business, Denise, and I was so interested in, in um, doing my little research on you that one of your interests is in sustainable hairdressing, uh, of all things. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is another one of my attempts to move beyond preaching to the converted because um, when you think how are you going to raise people's awareness and change their practices, who do they listen to? Well, they don't really listen to politicians much. Quite often they'll listen to their hairdressers. And um, hairdressing um, can be an extremely high impact activity. Um, like with the fuel crisis, I don't know about you, but we're being told to turn our lights off and this, that and the other. But actually running hot water um, is one of the most energy intensive things you can do in your homes and in hairdressing salons. So um, hairdressing can have a very high carbon footprint if you're standing in the shower under the hot shower, especially if it's a power shower for a long time and you're, you know, shampooing, rinsing, shampooing again, conditioner, leaving in, and all this, it's actually a very, very high carbon footprint. So we engage with hairdressers 
and we discovered quite a few win-wins that actually your hair does not like too much hot water it doesn't really like too much product or too much chemicals um, and neither does your skin and especially if you have dry hair or sensitive skin standing under a power shower with very hot water you know coming down on you especially if you're using harsh shampoos or shower gel your pores are opening really wide because of the heat all these chemicals are coming in and they're not destroying your friend you know your necessarily the bad bacteria under that kind of pressure it's destroying your skin's healthy bacteria the friendly bacteria that keeps it young so you can really lead to rashes and an aging effect so there's quite a few reasons not to be overwashing in terms of hair and and your, your body and indeed your house because a lot of the cleaning products you know um are very harsh harsh strong detergents not great for the environment and not great for your energy bills as well so we did a lot of work working with hairdressers trying to get them to share this information and we got sort of mirror talkers um where you could put eco tips on mirrors like should i am i shampooing too much well the answer is almost always yes or what about leave-in conditioner so that means you don't have to wash it out or dry shampoo which is very good for extending the life of your of your shampoo so these are, are really good ways to lower your carbon footprint that's so interesting um, so it's really using hairdressers to, to share this information yeah and incorporating sustainability into all businesses uh, right um denise how did you get involved in sustainability issues what was your um, professional trajectory to, that launched you into this okay well this goes back to books so i guess i was just you know didn't especially think about it and then i read a book by ben elton is that familiar to you he's a, an english comic um but he wrote a really funny book called stark and it was kind of like an adventure with a bit of romance but right in, in the middle of it he'd have little characters little vignettes and one of them was like, Dave was a water birth. And within a few moments of being born, he died. And, um, and he engages you in this character and you suddenly find out Dave is a dolphin <laughs> caught in one of these new tuna nets. And I thought, oh, right. And I thought, well, actually I can buy dolphin friendly tuna. And he, he did this, he dotted these little sort of characters throughout a really exciting, funny book. And that was my, and it kind of turned me into a bit of a greenie. And I, that was my think of, you know, using fiction to, to spread the word. And then as a greenie, I sort of became a bit of a green activist at the university. And then when the business ethics lecturer left, they said, well, you can do that because you're always harassing us about recycling. <laughs> and then before I knew it, I was teaching sustainable business. So, <laughs> so there you go. That's, um, yeah. is business sustainable business compatible with capitalism i mean do you see a, are, are you optimistic about that uh, that's a that's a question i could spend a whole week talking about and we have about 30 um, seconds <laughs> I'll be quick. Oh, there you go <laughs> uh, i'll be quick it's tricky because the the pub a lot of it has been trying to look for win-wins but actually if the main purpose of the business is selling stuff and stuff you know is based on finite resources, there is an immediate disconnect. So we really need to look for more sustainable business models. 
So things like going from a, a buy as much as you can to an access-based economy, like, you know, what if you had a Spotify of stuff and Amazon of borrowing, you know, ways to fashion swaps, these kinds of things uh, to incentivize more sustainable consumption in general. But um, I think we need to look at the purpose of business. In France, they've moved away from a profit maximization as the main purpose of business to incorporate legally social and environmental aspects into business purpose. That sounds like we're a looking to do the same in the UK. And I think even the business roundtable in, in America is moving that way. Just, just a little bit. more. Let slowly. us hope so, because that will generate much more positive responses than what we're getting now. And it's really nice to leave it on that optimistic note. On that positive note. We've been talking with Denise Baden. Denise is a professor of sustainable business at the university of Southampton in England. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, we look forward to more stories and you can uh, get her anthology of uh, short stories based on climate solutions called No More Fairy Tales, stories to save our planet, hoping that you are shopping at uh, a local bookstore. Uh, and we'll be right back with Jazz. This is Jazz right? Take 5 segment with Ruth Griggs. Thank you, Brian Adams. Thank you, Buzz. And uh, we'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts State Police are investigating after human remains were recovered in Westfield. Officials say partial remains were found inside Stanley Park in a heavily wooded area. A hunter reportedly found the remains Saturday around 5 p.m. The remains were determined to be of 57-year-old Timothy Colendo of Westfield, who was reported missing in December 2019. State police say there is no evidence to suggest Colendo's death is suspicious. As state lawmakers mull another run at ambitious plans to make child care affordable, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren rolled out a plan Wednesday to do the same nationwide. Under a federal proposal that is backed by Governor Maura Healey, a family in Massachusetts with two children making over $130,000 per year would pay no more than $10 per day or $200 per month down from the current average cost of $3,128 per month. The bill would also ensure higher-income families pay no more than 7% of their income, and lower-income families making less than 75% of their state's median income would be fully subsidized. According to data from Child Care Aware of America, Massachusetts is the most expensive state in the country when it comes to full-time child care costs, averaging just under $17,000 a year. The owners of the Falltown Grill in Bernardston, previously the Four Leaf, have made the decision to not reopen the restaurant. In June of last year, the restaurant suffered a devastating fire just three weeks after opening. Mostly cloudy today, scattered rain and snow showers, middle of the day transitioning to all rain showers for the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Rain will continue this evening, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix and mild on Friday, a high of 50 to 54. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP.
1240 WHMP. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413-775-8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the Wealth Management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And it is Thursday. It's time for Take 5 with Ruth Griggs. I'm so excited to talk to our buddy uh, Bruce Nimzik from Florida, live from Florida. Live from Florida, live live from the sunny state of Florida. Yeah, we are going to be talking to our, our buddy Bruce about his recent experience on the jazz cruise which i've also been on and i just thought hey it's it's cold up here it's still winter and maybe people up here should be thinking about a little bit of a jazz getaway that they can look forward to you're on the water for a period of time with some very talented people and and bruce bruce and gretchen and pat just um had a wonderful time um sailing out of miami last month and I just thought, hey, maybe there's some listeners out there that want to hear about, you know, seven days of live jazz at sea. So, Bruce. In February. In February no, in New England. Actually, it, <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was, it was wonderful. I was like a kid in a candy shop. but it, There were 100 musicians on board, and they were amazing. What, what the premise is, is they get together and do different uh, – gigs from one end of the boat to the other and the combinations are awesome i could list the names and you would just be a gog it was it was so so cool and the the musicians were so accessible so willing to talk to you about anything and i'll tell you that the, the most significant thing that i came away with is these guys and women they absolutely love each other. They love playing with each other, and you could it, it it was it was beautiful to see. It was it was wonderful. Well, I think you should name some of the headliners oh, okay. at least, Bruce. I mean, that's uh, okay. Well, that's a well, that's Grammy a key award. draw. A little name dropping, please, Bruce. Oh, okay, let me name drop. Oh, two two Grammy Award winner, uh, Samira Joy. 
Oh, she was on, on the oh, boat. My, oh, my goodness. She was on the boat, and she did two. Uh, well, we saw her twice. And the deal is they're playing, you know, several days in a row, so you can only catch, you know, certain performances because you want to see another performance. And so one day I was um, standing in line to get a coffee, and uh, who was I talking with? Peter Washington, the bass player that you've probably seen with uh, Bill Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And he had, he and Kenny Washington had just done the gig with her the night before. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, Peter, uh, she the real deal? And he goes, oh, yeah, she's the real deal. And then, of course, she's the, you know, jazz vocalist and new new artist of the year. So, yeah, she is the real deal. Let's see. At 24 years old. At 24, At 24 years old. old. And, uh, Two Grammys. She's, she's great. Uh, the first day I was on the boat. You know, I tend to get up early, and I'm walking around looking, checking the thing out. And who's sitting at a piano just playing was Bill Charlotte. Yeah. So I walked over, and I said, hey, Bill, you know, we've seen you many times at the Iron Horse. And we spent, oh, 10 minutes talking about the Iron Horse. And he was sad to hear that the place had closed down and how much he had enjoyed um, playing there over the years and how. He, he opened the Bombic Center. He was the first act with D.D. Yeah, Bridgewater. He and Dee Dee Bridgewater, who I'll tell you a little bit about later, who I ran into her a couple of times. Um, yeah, it was it was just it was just great. I it's mean, actually a perfect environment for you, be, who love to schmooze with you know <laughs> the jazz yeah. people. I mean, I yeah. can see why you were like a kid in a candy. When I was on the jazz cruise, uh, it was in 2020, my first time on the jazz cruise, and. As you may remember, Kurt Elling was one of our was the headliner at the Jazz Festival in 2019 at the Northampton Jazz Festival. At the Northampton Jazz Festival, of which you're the president. (laughs) And who who I happen to know that you and some of your fellow women were um, just oogling over. Well, that would be me. That would be me. And and I just have such a huge crush on him. I just can't I- even speak. It's like, you know, and, it's like you and a baseball player. And so And he was also on the he was also He's on always the on the cruise. And Carol yeah. Carol Abby Smith kept saying, "Ruth, he's sitting right there. He's having breakfast breakfast with his buds. Just go over and talk yeah. to him." And I'm like, "Oh no, he's not going to remember me." And she said, "He was just in Northampton a year ago. You got to go over and talk to him." And I was too shy to talk to you him. You didn't? No. <laughs> I have too much of a crush on him. But Bruce, on the other hand, he'll talk to oh, anybody. God bless you, anybody. Bruce. <laughs> not, only, not only musicians, but other guests on the boat, which were fascinating. Speaking of the Northampton connection, I walked up to Entian and Charles, and uh, I said, maybe you won't remember this, but you, you played um, you know, the festival in Northampton. He goes, oh, yeah, I think that was in like September of 14. Wow. And I, says, and I said, I remembered because what I did is – they pulled up in their van. The band pulled up in the van, and he happened to have a head cold. So I jumped in the van with him and drove him around to uh, CVS to buy some Sudafeds. My story is I've always taken a jazz musician to buy drugs. And he, rem- <laughs> and he remembered that. And he said, oh, yeah, man, I remember that. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a ball. You're like a groupie, Bruce. <laughs> you are. Yes, I, oh, yeah. I was, oh, amazingly so. Uh, and, and, you know, one, one of the other great things was they had um, conversations and lectures every morning. And there was a guy that uh, Bill Blumenthal, who was a writer for the uh, Phoenix, Boston Phoenix, when I was in school. And I remembered 
reading his his stuff back then. So we talked for a long while, and he would interview um, some of the musicians in the morning, and that just it was fast. It was it was great, and he, he showed you. We, maybe next year we'll sure. have to do a a live on the ship interview with you <laughs> while would, you're down there because I do I know I'll, you're going back, right? No, not for a couple of years because you got to look at your travel budget and. Um, there are many other things that Gretchen and I want to do, but I would go back for sure, but maybe not next year. Yeah, and I the noticed. Other problem would be, I noticed uh, next year's cruise. They're already promoting next year's cruise, and it's going to be January 18 to 24. Uh, the Jazz Cruise leaves from Miami, and uh, an inside stateroom is twenty seven hundred dollars a person. Yeah, so it's yeah. not cheap. It's pricey, but I, I just want to. Room, and the rooms were comfortable. Yeah. Even though Bruce has a good, deep voice, he never sings, and he refuses to sing. I've tried to cajole him into singing while I'm playing the piano, and he said, maybe one of these years is a quote. But you, okay, Ruth Griggs. That's a challenge. We're doing it, bud. All right. We're going to do it. That was a challenge. That was a dare. But Ruth Griggs okay. is a vocalist and an accomplished vocalist. And what I learned from my sister and brother-in-law, who have gone on several of these cruises over the years, he brings his tenor sax. She brings her voice. And there's all these jams that happen with these jazz greats. And people like you, Ruth, could perform with these incredible, with a Bill Charlap playing, you know, on the piano for you. Yeah, yeah, well, that, w- that, that, that would be a dream. I did not do that when I was on the cruise oh, a couple years ago. Oh, I thought ago. you were going to tell me a story. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, again, this is little miss shy retiring type. In front of a musician, I, I, just, I, I, just, I just lose it. I'm just so in awe. I, I <laughs> But uh, yeah, they do. I rem- I remember seeing these musicians just hanging out in the hallway, playing the the upright, you know, at eleven o'clock yeah. in the morning, ten o'clock in they the just morning. Just jam all the time with and each other. And then people walk by, yeah. and they do. They just they just start jamming. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They did that every morning, and there was like a group that you know would join in. It was the, the usual suspects were there. And uh, I actually, I ran into uh, uh, Gary Simulian and talk, had a couple conversations with him. And he led up a, a couple sessions himself. And one of the things they do is they have daily they have what they call the all star grouping. So the you know the group a bunch of different musicians together. And Gary was heading up one day, and he he introduces the program and he says I'm going to do um, the music of Charlie Parker. And I'm thinking oh my they're going to do Ornithology and Coco and all these things. What he did was um, Charlie Parker did uh, basically a ballads album, and the 10 different musicians did um, takes on each of the ballads. It was absolutely gorgeous. And Buzz, Gary did a, a rendition of Lush Life, which I know is one of your uh, favorites. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. Oh, Billy Strayhorn. I wish I, had it, I wish I had it recorded. It was beautiful. Well, for the listeners who don't know, Gary Simoleon is... is the smallest and largest musician you'll ever see. He's a short man with a baritone sax. It's about his height, I think, and he it's can pretty darn close. Yeah. And he really is. I mean, he's, he's people say it, it sounds hyperbolic. He's one of the world's greatest baritone sax. Yeah, he's players. a multi-award winning um, Downbeat magazine artist. And he's one of our boys from around here. And he, yeah, his his daughter went to UMass, and he had a house in in Amherst for a long time. And uh, he's, he's, I knew him from New York when I lived in New York. 
I was introduced to him up in Westchester because he used to play with Ronnie Huber and a few other. They had a like a three or four baritone uh, band. Oh my goodness! Uh, it, oh. I think it was four baritones. Well, who could better play Charlie Parker? Than yeah. Him? Well, oh, he's just a total bebopper. I mean, it, Gary Smolian is a total bebopper. So um, we're gonna we're gonna uh, pause here to take a little break, and we will be right back to talk more about the jazz cruise with our buddy Bruce Nemchik, all the way from Florida. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me Saturdays at 9.30 a.m. as we shine a light on justice-involved underdogs, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. Unlock your future, rewrite your story. Tune into the Hustler Files right here on WHMP. Bobby Broom, jazz guitar. Bobby was a regular opening act for Steely Dan, a five-time winner best jazz guitarist in Downbeat's annual jazz poll. Next Thursday, Bobby's coming to UMass. The Bobby Broom Trio, Thursday, February 16th, Bowker Auditorium at UMass. Born in Harlem in the early 60s, Broom played the New York scene in his younger days, joining Art Blakey's band. He went on to play with Humas Akela, Miles Davis, Max Roach, Dr. John. 30 years ago, he formed the Bobby Broom Trio, and they're coming to UMass next Thursday. Get tickets on the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Bobby Broom Trio, Thursday, February 16th, Bowker Auditorium at UMass. Sundays at Gateway City Arts, bazaar, brunch, and programming. Something wonderful every weekend on the Canal in Holyoke. Shop for collectibles, vintage and used clothing, vinyl records, and much more at the Race Street Bazaar and brunch from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., followed by poetry, music, or programs for children. On February 12th, Gateway welcomes world-renowned arch guitarist and composer Peter Blanchett for a free concert starting at 2 p.m. Check out the upcoming schedule at gatewaycityarts.com and plan your Sundays at GCA. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is our Take 5 segment with Ruth Griggs, and you're talking about jazz cruises. We're talking about the jazz cruise, um, the jazz cruise leaving Miami. Um, they, they, uh, they steam out of there in January um, every year, and it's, fill, it's literally seven days of cruising with jazz musicians. And on the phone, we've got... Uh, Bruce Nemchik from Florida, who took the took the cruise this last January, and uh, he's going to talk a little bit more about the um, sort of like what happens, like what happens when you're on the boat, and what's the experience like. A uh, little bit more of the logistics, so that if people are interested in it, 
uh, the jazz crews, they can uh, have a better feel for it. Bruce, say, say Bruce, it's, it's Bill. Do you go anywhere? Sure. Do you get off the boat? Well, yeah, we, what happens? You know what? I really didn't even want to get off the boat because there's music basically from lunchtime to 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay, well, I like to get off the boat. So let me tell you what that's like, Bill. So when I was on it in 2020, I loved the excursions. We went to Cozumel. We went to the Yucatan. We got off the boat and we toured and and climbed around the, the old Mayan ruins. We learned about Mayan history. I loved that. And then the third excursion, um, we had our last our last uh, stop was at Key West. What's not to love? And I went well, scuba the diving. Ma- the uh, the museums, the museums, the the architecture, the the uh, the history, the history of right. <laughs> it, the rum. It was. I mean, I I I love the excursions, and and I you know personally, I was I was fine to get off the boat for a little while. I mean, um, so I I thought it was. I thought the excursions were important, and the jazz cruise always stops at three different locations, and you know, yeah. in that sort of general Caribbean, you know, Gulf area, Central America, and and it was. Um, Before we go back to to Bruce. Uh, you were telling us that Carol had an experience on, on one of these cruises. Yeah, we, we, you know, Carol Abby Smith. We were talking with Bruce about just what it's like to rub elbows with these these jazz musicians, like at eleven o'clock in the morning, or in my case with Kurt Elling, you know, for breakfast. And <laughs> and uh, the first time Carol went on the ship was, I believe, in two thousand nineteen. And she was on an excursion. She was at the beach somewhere in the Caribbean. And who was prancing around with his buds but Emmett Cohen? And this was when Emmett Cohen, this is, again, 2018, 19, and he was coming up, but he wasn't what he is now. And she literally just walked over to that man and said, hey, you know, I'm from the Northampton Jazz Festival, and, you know, I've been hearing you play on the ship. We'd love to have you come to the festival. And voila, there on the beach, she signed Emmett Cohen to come to the jazz festival, which he did in 2019 and had an amazing solo performance right here at Click Workspace. It takes a real estate agent to be able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Carol has chutzpah. (laughs) Well, see, I I, I would be afraid that I'd lose my jazz junkie card if I went to uh, any of the excursions. So I stayed on the boat and talked with all the musicians. Except for one one uh, time when the night before uh, they did a tribute to the Ray Brown trio, and Dee Dee Bridgewater came out and she sang uh, "Here's That Rainy Day" and it was gorgeous and literally everybody in the place was bawling, including her. Well, the next day we were walking around in uh, Nassau at the straw market, and I look over. Wait a second! You were walking around. You got off the boat. Oh my God! You've <laughs> blown your cover, Bruce. He could walk Bill, on water. It was only, it, seriously, it was only an hour and a half, and they made me do it. So we're walking around, and there's Dee Dee Bridgewater. So I went up to her, and I said, uh, you're Dee Dee, right? And she goes, yes. And I wish I could have remembered how to whistle uh, the song Little Darling, but I just couldn't get the tune in my head because that was a tune that they played before. And I said, you, you had the whole house balling last night. She said, you know, I said, it was gorgeous what you did. And she said, oh, my God, I couldn't couldn't control myself. It was just it was it was an awesome moment. And the other awesome moments were like uh the, the clarinetist saxophonist uh Ken Poplowski. Yeah. He played every he played everywhere during the week. 
come to find out, he had been very, very sick. He had lost like 80 pounds. And the last night we saw him, he explained that and how much the rest of the community had supported him. And, you know, he didn't have insurance, everything. Uh, through like a GoFundMe page, they, they raised over $100,000 to support him through his uh, cancer treatments. And it, it was really nice to see the relationship between the musicians. I, I absolutely loved it. Well, and the conversation. Yeah, it, it it there is a lot of love going on on that ship, but but to get back a little bit, just to to give again the listeners a sense of what goes on, um, if, if you're interested in just checking it out for 2024, it's com. It's that easy. Leaves from Miami, um, you know, it's it's a it's a huge ship that holds 2,000 people. Um, the the service is impeccable. I'll never forget in 2020. Very good. I I was watching the the, the you know the staff um, sanitizing the underside of the tables mm-hmm. in the in yep. the cafe. Um, they have restaurants on board. They have very formal dining every night if that's what you want to do. There's food available um, on the ship, 24 by seven. Um, my favorite was going to the um, going to the Eggs Benedict bar. They had a, a dedicated huh. Eggs Benedict bar, and I would get Eggs Benedict every morning, you know, fresh made from scratch. It was absolutely delightful. I just I just want and to point out, right. even even though uh, I'm a jazz, you know, I I hated people think of me as a jazz snob because I, I kind of ignore other genres and. In some ways, I am, and I'm embarrassed by that fact. However, I also know that these cruises—they have folk cruises, they have—they have a number of other genres where, if if your taste isn't in jazz, mm-hmm. um, there's there, there's a cruise for you. Yes, that's 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 likely very very true. And and you're right. This is this is take five. We are talking about jazz, and <laughs> so we, we're gonna we focus on that a little bit. But it's a they you know these these people so know what they're doing. Um, they're very accommodating, and again the excursions are lovely for those people that want a little bit of a break. And it and but there are there are plenty of people that don't get off the boat. Um, it, the the crowd the the guests tend to be a little on the older side, you know. Oh, I yeah. it, you know, there's I would say the average age is at least seventy, if not seventy five. Yikes! Because, yes, because everything the is silver so, tsunami. The silver tsunami, because everything is so accessible, which well, is important. So um, can I ask you this? You said two thousand people on this boat ship, I guess. Uh, oh, but I think of jazz as being in a small club, relatively intimate and the like. Are we talking about performances in big venues or in small clubs? How does that work? It's it's both. That's what's kind of interesting. I mean, they have this vast auditorium that's at the back of the ship, which is how many right. does that seat, Bruce? Maybe three hundred people. It, no, no, no. The one the the theater. Yeah. It's actually bigger than the academy, and I bet you it's, it's close to a thousand. Okay. Yeah, and so then they have the then they have the Sky Lounge, which is is probably the one that's about three hundred people. Back to what you were saying about the, about the staff, we we became very friendly with people that were servers at the table, and the man that was the captain, he was from Honduras, and to listen to him tell his life story was was fascinating. And on the ship, there were people from sixty two working sixty two different countries, from uh, the, the gentleman that was our. Uh, one of our servers was from Uganda, and he was telling us how he's trying to put money back together 
to open a, a water park. And it was just like, okay, if you can find the financing, maybe you got to, you know, maybe that's what will happen one day. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of neat. Really, really wonderful, wonderful people. And and just to follow up on that, Bill, there's there's all different types of venue environments on the ship, so that, you know, there are times when they sort of open up a little a little lounge area, uh, and they have like late night jazz there, and you know, it maybe holds sixty people. It's very very intimate, and then at the front of the ship, there's this really dramatic. Uh, performance space with windows all around and a wraparound bar, and it's just is very very dramatic. Well, I'm interested in the bar part. I was fascinated about all the <laughs> food, but is is there adult beverages involved in this uh, is ex- yeah, excursion? Yeah, yeah. There's if some you know the right s- guy, you can get adult beverages. Yes, yes <laughs> you can. Easy peasy. They like to sell you like a, a whole package. Which is a little embarrassing to talk to somebody about how much you're going to be drinking in the next seven days. <laughs> Some people are a, a little righteous and they're like, oh, oh, no, I don't need a package, you know. And other people are like, well, yeah, I have to admit, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> but the other thing is these, these musicians, which you just have listened to and just loved so much, they're next to you in line to get the drink, right? I mean, you're there commingling with. Genius. They're right behind you getting Genius. your eggs Benedict. Absolutely. Yes, they are. Yep. <laughs> so they, at one point I went up to John Pizzarelli and I told him how I had seen his dad play and how, how he played this wonderful version of Sending the Clowns. And he promised that he would play it the next night and he did it. So I'll never forgive him for that. That's Boy, it. you are the man, Bruce. You, you are <laughs> so the man, the brazen Bruce Nimzik. Well, listen, say hello to your wife, your lovely wife, Gretchen. And um, thank you so much for joining us today, Bruce. <laughs> and and it was lovely to hear hear all about the jazz cruise and go down memory lane. And again, to our listeners, if you want to check out the jazz cruise, it's thejazzcruise.com. Thanks so much for being with us today, and uh, see you in another week. That's take five. We'll be with you tomorrow, Friday, on Talk to Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Have a great evening. is Talk the Talk. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1415-1400-1240 WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.